Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I used to take the concept of place for granted. Traipsing recklessly through the woods, not knowing the histories of the places I lived, and general apathy about place is something I never thought much about until I came to truly appreciate the importance of place because somebody asked me to really care about place-based learning and education for the first time about 10 years ago as a graduate student. So many guests on this show are specialists of place, and hearing their stories of why they love the places they love is such a delight. This episode is about place, it's about migration, it's about borders, and the places under focus are the Himalayan regions including Tibet, Bhutan, and Sikkim. My guest is Swati Chala. Swati Chala is assistant professor at the Jindal School of Liberal Arts and Humanities at OP Jindal Global University, and she is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Virginia. Her doctoral research is focused on migration, citizenship making, and contemporary Buddhisms in the Himalayan regions of post-colonial South Asia. Her master's and MPhil work focused on the Tibetan Buddhist female monastic tradition in exile, and she hosts the Twitter channel, hashtag Himalayan Histories. And we discuss all of these topics and more in this conversation, and I hope that you love it. So, without further delay, here is my conversation with Swati Chala. Swati Chala, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. 
Absolutely. We had a little bit of scheduling delays here and there, um, yeah. seeing as how we're on the other side of the world. But it's so delightful to to finally be able to chat with you. I'm just so grateful you're here. So, Swati, I want to start off by having you just introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, however you see fit. Sure. Um, I'm Swati Chabla. I'm an assistant professor at the School of Liberal Arts and Humanities, OP Jindal Global University in India. Uh, I'm also a fellow at Sacred Rights this year, which is a loose foundation funded project at Northeastern. Um, and I'm about to finish my PhD at the Department of History at the University of Virginia. Fabulous. Well, how would you describe your your academic research interests? Tell everybody about like what you focus on, what you specialize in, and what you study. How would you describe that? Sure. Um, so I always say that my research is animated by two questions that we ask uh, all the time. Uh, one is, um, why do people move? Mm. Um, and relatedly, how do you answer the question, where are you from? Because uh, that's the question when you're, you know, you're in an Uber and uh, you start chatting with the driver uh, <laughs> or your co-passenger and you ask them, where are you from? Uh, and I try to show in my research how actually neither of these is a very, is, is not a simple question. It's, it's an everyday, it's a common question, but it's not an easy question to answer. So my work uh, is on migration, on why people move, uh, particularly in post-colonial South Asia. Mm. Uh, and relatedly, I ask, uh, how was the current map of South Asia forged in the 20th century? And the emphasis here is on forging, which is to say that it came about uh, through human actions at a particular point in history. And those who were drawing this map had uh, their interests, their agendas, if you will. Uh, and it isn't as if, uh, so one of my students uh, once wrote in the teaching evals that he learned in the course that maps don't come as facsimiles from heaven, uh, which yes. is true. So they're not faxed yeah. from heaven. They're drawn by human actors. So how were they drawn in the 20th century in South Asia? That's, that's what I work on. Mm, that is so fascinating because, you know, anybody who is born today, might mm -hmm. grow up in school seeing maps and never have that question answered of why does that line exist where it does? Yeah. And there's so many interesting stories behind why maps are drawn the way they are. It's a really fascinating question. And I'm really glad that you're bringing that to the attention of your students because I think it's a, a criminally overlooked area of study, do you know? Mm -hmm. And then so much literal blood is shed over them, right? Yeah. <laughs> to this day. Yeah. So much life. Absolutely. Well, okay. So I'm curious about how you got interested in these mm -hmm. topics. Um, I'm curious about your academic path, some of your stepping stones that like, you know, as you're, as you're growing up and learning about the world, how you mm -hmm. came to follow these questions that you that you got interested in. Um, so I'm curious if you mm -hmm. could tell me about some of the stepping stones that have led you down the path that you have traveled until today. Sure. Uh, so actually, all four of my grandparents moved because the map of India got redrawn. They were uh, refugees uh, after the partition of uh, British India into independent India and uh, Pakistan, the two states in 1947. 
So I grew up on the stories of forced migration and the slow and painful process of making a home in a new place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that uh, really that had an influence uh, on me on uh, how I saw the world uh, and how I saw my family and uh, our country. Uh, so cut to my undergrad days, uh, the Tibetan government in exile in India runs a program uh, where they host Indian students for a summer in Tibetan Buddhist monastic institutions. Mm. So uh, this is in and around Dharamshala, which is where the Dalai Lama is currently based Mm -hmm. and his exile government is based. So uh, I was a literature major at the time and uh, I was uh, just interested in knowing more about Tibetan exile. Um, And I saw this poster and it had the Dalai Lama's photo on it and, you know, his smiling face. And it said, come spend the summer at a Tibetan Buddhist uh, nunnery. And I applied and I got through. And that's really, you know, it's such a cliche, but it changed my life. Uh, So I stayed there for the summer. Uh, It was my first experience of monastic life, uh, which is very different from the life I was used to. I mean, just to give you one example, there were no mirrors uh, in the nunnery. So, you know, I mean, just what that does to you, not looking into the mirror for several weeks and you know um so just small things like that but also big things i mean these nuns were among the bravest and kindest most generous people i've met in my life um and so many of them had gone through traumatic experiences of having been imprisoned and tortured in prison uh escaping into india uh from tibet but um I mean, again, it's, just, it's such a cliche, but, you know, I didn't see any bitterness or anger or the sense of being a victim, you know, just um, just to resolve, to make things better. Uh, so I think that really um, changed something in me. And I also saw at that time in their daily actions how they how they exemplified Buddhist principles such as nonviolence towards all beings and towards the physical environment, the principles of impermanence and interbeing and no self. Mm. Uh, and I saw that, you know, when this informed the most basic things such as how they cooked or consumed food, how they acted towards their peers, towards strangers, I mean, even insects, you know, how they would, for example, say that. You can use a mosquito net to protect yourself from the mosquitoes, but not a mosquito repellent that would kill the mosquito. Mm. You know, so I mean, it's a, it's a small thing, but it really shows how there was um, integrity. I mean, integrity in the sense of an alignment between principle and lived life. Um, and uh, I think that uh, that was one of the stepping stones. And then, of course, you know, relatedly, the experience of exile, of yeah. living in India uh, and those stories of, you know, what does it mean uh, to be living in exile? Uh, what does it mean to have a freedom struggle, uh, to contribute to that struggle, to advocate for change? Um, so for my... Uh, MPhil thesis, which was uh, in Delhi University a few years later, I worked on Tibetan national culture in exile, and I focused on the Tibetan nuns project and the Tibet Museum. 
so when it came to applying to PhD programs, uh, I mean, I didn't really know. I didn't really know what would be a good disciplinary home for me. Uh, but my advisors in Delhi uh, believed that uh, I should apply to universities in the U.S. because there's a there's a strong emphasis on language training mm. and on interdisciplinary work, which we don't quite have, or we didn't at least at that time uh, have uh, in India. So I applied actually very widely to programs in sociology, <laughs> and religious studies, and South Asian studies, and history. So. I got a couple of offers and when it came to choosing, I thought history was the best fit because at that time, um, I thought I wanted to be a scholar of migration uh, and Tibet, Tibetan exile would just be my first project, but I would look at other migrations in South Asia, such as the partition. But then I landed up at UVA, which is uh, which has this huge Tibetan studies program. Um, so cool. And then four years of language lessons and half my coursework was in religious studies. So I think then it sort of made me a scholar of Tibet uh, as much as of migration. And I think this is going to be my home, at least for the next couple of projects. Well, that is absolutely wonderful. And so all those experiences. So how long were you in the uh, monastic life? Was that just a summer program, you said? Yeah, so it was for a summer, and then I returned uh, every year or sometimes a couple of times a year, but I never quite, I mean, I didn't, again, have that immersive experience of spending several weeks, mm -hmm. but I kept in touch and I kept returning. Wonderful. I absolutely love that. Those transformative experiences that happen at certain ages in a person's life, it, yeah. it, it's really powerful hearing those kinds of stories from multiple people because, you know, I have those kinds of stories myself mm -hmm. and hearing mm -hmm. other people's turning points. I absolutely, I never yeah. bore, I never tire of hearing those mm -hmm. stories. You know, it's just something that really, I, it really makes me feel a connection to the people that come on the show and tell me those stories. I love it. So thank you so much for sharing that experience. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. So these experiences and these education programs and degree programs that you followed have led you through your scholarly path to becoming a 2020 Sacred Rights cohort member, which you mentioned Yay! in your introduction. Yay, I know. <laughs> and um, I, I've spoken to everybody from the 2019 and 2020 cohorts, and I absolutely love this program with all my heart. And I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about why you personally applied to the fellowship and what sorts of skills you have been gaining during the training sequence that you've gone through? Mm -hmm. So I think I basically fangirled on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a lot of us do. I just yeah. thought this is a bunch of really cool people and I wanted to be their friend. So I just thought I would apply. Um, and uh, Alison Melnick, uh, who you interviewed last yeah. year, uh, she was uh, she was my senior at UVA. And uh, I think so many good things in my life have happened thanks to Alison. So Alison introduced me to tater tots, which mm. I think is the best kind of fried potatoes. <laughs> uh, and it's sort of the discovery of the US, the culinary discovery, at least. I love she it. She also took me on my first trip to Sikkim. It was thanks to her contacts. And she introduced me to Sacred Rights and she mm. helped me with my application. So yay, thanks to Alison. Um, but I think I also, I, I agree with the mission. Um, I, I think, like, like I'm sure you feel this too, Greg. Sometimes you open the papers or, you, you know, turn on the television and 
you just say, see people say really uninformed things that are potentially dangerous. Mm. And you feel that, you know, I don't know a lot about a lot, but there is this small thing that I know quite a bit about. And there is something at stake to getting this right uh, yeah. in public perceptions. So I think it was just this kind of something gnaws at you or keeps you awake and you feel, what am I doing about this? Um, so I think I really did believe uh, as someone who had the opportunity to go to 13 archives in five countries, you know, had the funding, had the best teachers, learned the language, that, you know, this research isn't just for paywalled, peer-reviewed venues. You know, I wanted, I wanted a broader audience for it. So I think that really was, uh, was one of the reasons uh, that I applied for it. And in terms of skills, I think um, you know, one thing that Sacred Ride does, and also here I want to give a shout out to the Op-Ed Project, which mm-hmm. has been my other um, training ground, uh, even before Sacred Rides. So I think what both of these do really well is they force you to answer the question, what are you an expert in? Mm. And to not define your expertise very narrowly so instead of saying i'm an expert on the tibetan buddhist female monastic tradition in exile to Mm -hmm. say that you know well maybe on tibetan buddhism more broadly or on exile on forced migration on uh, monasticisms on buddhist monasticisms so i think uh, that's a very useful skill because i feel that in the academy the higher up we go the narrower and narrower we get paradoxically mm, and the less confident. Uh, I think I was way more confident as a master's student, you know, than I am now. Um, so I think that is something that Sacred Rights really does well. Uh, and I think each of the training modules uh, is a way of getting at that question. Then, of course, very practical skills like how to pitch, uh, say, an op-ed or an explainer piece, um, how to be smarter or more engaging on Twitter, uh, also about the risks and rewards of public scholarship, you know, given the world we live in and how polarized opinions can get sometimes uh, and, you know, what you need to do for your mental health and how you need to make these choices. Uh, so I, I think they, they do that very well and I'm very fortunate to have been selected. I absolutely love it. And I love hearing those stories about the the thing that you mentioned about higher ed and how we get narrower as we go higher. That mm-hmm. really speaks to me because I was in a PhD program and I was sort of floundering, right? I couldn't pick something mm. that I wanted to focus my, to do some studies on that would lead to a dissertation. Because mm-hmm. every time I would read a book, I would say, this is the best book I've ever read. And then I would yeah. want to follow that. And then I would find another book and I would say, well, this is the best book I've ever read. So I realized about halfway through that it really wasn't quite for me because I didn't want to do the early career specializing that was Mm. necessary. I wanted to continue like reading as widely as possible. And I just realized I didn't quite have the time to emphasize something within my studies while also um, continuing to read as widely as I wanted to and explore as many things as I wanted to. So that's why I love doing this type of project, because now I can talk to anybody that I want from any topic and I just mm-hmm. get like a taste, do you know what I mean, of every topic yeah. I can possibly get. So this is really wonderful. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's go. Let's get into some of your work. I want to talk mm-hmm. about Tibet. 
Bhutan and the Indian state of Sikkim. Um, when I was in grad school, I started to personally appreciate the importance of place and mm -hmm. the ground beneath my feet. I was at a master's program at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada, mm -hmm. and they had an amazing place-based education program that I was fortunate enough to study in. And so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about your, your love and appreciation of location and place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I think the first thing I want to say right off the bat is very often, so I grew up uh, in the plains. I didn't grow up in the mountains, uh, in Delhi, North India. And um, I had always thought of the Himalaya as, uh, you know, in our school textbooks, for example, or in nationalist songs and patriotic songs, we sing about the Himalayan mountains as guards or protectors. Uh, one of our famous poets called it the wall of India. So it's as if their function is to protect India from well, the east and the north. Uh, so on the other side of the Himalaya is Tibet and China. And I think what I realized through this work is that for people who live in the mountains, that isn't how they see, that isn't how they relate to the mountains. Mm -hmm. For them, they, these aren't barriers. You know, these are uh, places uh, of very lively exchange, trade, migration, uh, seasonal migration, you know, grazing your cattle across what then became national borders, uh, trading across what later became national borders, intermarriage, kinship ties, uh, being patrons of a monastery uh, or a temple across again what became a border. So I think the idea of the Himalayas as lived spaces, as uh, spaces of like I said, migration and trade and exchange, mm -hmm. as opposed to this kind of sterile guard or sentinel that protects India from what is on the other side, or this kind of, uh, you know, they are the, the youngest and the tallest mountains in the world. So to think about them as uh, being formidable and distant, as opposed to being lived, mm. uh, you know, being a lived space. So I think that has been... Uh, my own journey having grown up uh, you know having lived in the plains uh, all my life pretty much before I started my research so I think that's an important corrective and much of South Asian history is written from and about the Indo-Gangetic plains uh, so the mountains are uh, aren't central to that history and I think a view from the mountains can enrich this history. And the same work is happening now with oceans, for example, with the Indian Ocean, and that's the work I'm most familiar with. But to not think of these, the mountains or the oceans as spaces that separate, but as ones that connect. Mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, growing up in the US Midwest, um, study, <laughs> study of other countries um, around the world and regions around the world is, shall we say, a little bit lacking now and then. <laughs> um, we're we're not exactly known for our uh, global views of education uh, around the world, at least not mm -hmm. in the '90s when I was in school. You know, um, mm -hmm. 
But I'm I'm wondering, and you also mentioned a little bit that caught my mind where um, the mountains aren't necessarily as central to learning as it could be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm wondering, what do you feel people around the world miss out on by neglecting to pay attention to the Himalayan region? What are we missing? See, one thing that we miss out on is, um, is I think, uh, maybe there are two ways of getting at it. One is that it's dangerous uh, to reduce spaces uh, to, you know, what their functions are to people who are not of those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that in and itself is, uh, I mean, I would say, you know, I mean, that's, that's not how it should be. Like, I wouldn't, you wouldn't want your country to be read or written about or your region or your state uh, from the perspective of somebody who lives in DC and, you know, has never traveled there. Uh, and, you know, just thinks about the Midwest as, you know, through their stereotypes or through what it does uh, for them. So I think that in itself, I mean, that's an important corrective. Uh, and the second is, I feel that for scholars uh, of South Asia or of India, uh, what they miss is a piece of Indian history, because very often when we reduce large countries like India, for example, uh, to histories of just some of their regions, we don't really get the full picture. And the picture that we get is often distorted. So for example, uh, as India becomes independent uh, in 1947, you know, people, I mean, even in India, you know, forget uh, how Indian history might be taught abroad. I mean, even in our textbooks, very often uh, we think that we just inherited from the British this mm. current India as it looks today, mm-hmm. whereas that's not true. You know, uh, the British only administered directly one part of the country. There were over 500 princely states that had different kinds of arrangements uh, with British India. And then there were these frontier states. Uh, and then there were treaties with the neighboring states like Sikkim and Bhutan, um, Nepal, Tibet. Uh, so it's it, the map was messier than it looks today. So I think when we forget that history, that uh, so so when today we have a border dispute uh, with China, for example, or you know when we if there's a trade dispute or if the temperatures are really high on either side, uh, not remembering this history is very dangerous. Mm. Uh, and I think, uh, and if we remember it, I think one of the tasks of an education in the humanities broadly, but I think history specifically is perhaps it makes us more humble uh, because sometimes, you know, with nationalisms, uh, temperatures really run high. I mean, and you know that from your yeah. experience in the US recently and yes. across the world. So I think we can do with some doses of humility. And one of the ways of cultivating humility is to tell histories from different regions and to decenter, uh, you know, the, the dominant understanding. Mm-hmm. I think that could be one way that you know we can cultivate humility. Yeah, well, them. and you mentioned the the um, challenging nature of cross border negotiations based on these long histories. And mm-hmm. I'm curious about the relationships between these places in the Himalayan regions. Like, I know this is 
an immense topic filling many mm. volumes of documented history over decades. So I realized the complexity and obviously encourage mm. all listeners to dig into each of the subtopics within the question. But I have to ask you, you know, mm-hmm. um, tell me what is important to know about the relationships of India, Tibet, mm-hmm. Sikkim, Bhutan, Nepal. Like I, I know there was like Indian treaty renegotiations of colonial era treaties. Mm-hmm. So what's important to know about these relationships? Um, so I think historically, uh, one of the things that's important to know is that these places were tied, as I said, in networks of intermarriage. Uh, so for example, um, uh, let's say around the time of independence, even in the mid 20th century, the king of Sikkim's sister is married to the prime minister of Bhutan, uh, whose son then gets married into the royal family so, of Bhutan. So there are these uh, networks of kinship, uh, and many of these families are also among, you know, they're married to aristocratic families in Tibet and Lhasa in particular. So, um, and the British were very aware of these connections. So they cultivated uh, the aristocratic families in the region because they knew that this would be one way to influence policy to have more favorable trade arrangements, for example. The other thing that's important to know uh, is that, you know, this is as with other parts of the colonized world, how do we know what we know about this region today? And so much of it that has come from the colonial encounters from the 18th century onwards, cartographers and surveyors, botanists, linguists, mountaineers, missionaries, uh, going into Tibet to produce knowledge about Tibet for British India. Mm. So I think one needs to remember that history and what context was this knowledge produced and what was its function and it was control. Uh, so on the one hand, I think we see, uh, uh, and I mean, if you think about like, you know, you ask any, uh, in, in the, when I was teaching at UVA, for example, an, an, an undergrad about Tibet, what do you know about Tibet? Mm. And they might say the Dalai Lama and yeah. they might say <laughs> monks in red robes. Or, yeah. You know, some people might say, okay, you know, tall mountains, but it's a plateau, but okay, mountains and yaks and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where are these images coming from? And this idea of Tibet as Shang is this utopian society that is untouched by forces of modernity and it's the repository of a true Buddhism. Um, So these are coming from colonial, early colonial writings and actually even before uh, the colonial experience, a lot of South Asian writing on Tibet also had these tropes, you know, of the mountains and of uh, this very romanticized idea of this almost mythical land. So we need to remember that history and sometimes, you know, read uh, these sources or even consume images. I mean, even a film like Seven Years in Tibet, for example, to be be consuming them with a a grain of salt, like whose gaze is it and whose eyes uh, are looking uh, and what what are their interests. So I think that's one part of it. The other is to understand that uh, British India uh, over a period of time from say the the late 18th century right up to the middle of the 20th century uh, was involved in this process of first understanding what its territorial uh, 
frontiers, what the frontiers of empire were, um, and then making sure that administration ran efficiently. So uh, these states that were on the on the fringes, if you look at them from Calcutta or from Delhi, uh, so not on the fringes if you live there, right? I mean, that's also center fringe, one needs to question that. But mm -hmm. having said that, uh, uh, the process of demarcating the territorial boundaries of what was British India and what was on the other side, uh, and uh, and then controlling, uh, so uh, controlling trade, for example, migration, uh, and and how these approaches uh, shaped what what was the academic engagement with Tibet. So both this idea of Shangri-La and monks in red robes and tall mountains and boundary making uh, became uh, two important tropes through which we came to understand India's relationship with Tibet. Mm. And also Britain viewed the Himalayan region uh, uh, say Sikkim, Bhutan, Nepal, as integral to securing its political and commercial interests in Tibet. Mm. So they would station a political officer in Sikkim from 1890 onwards, who played an important role in this process. And he would keep an eye on what was happening in Bhutan and what's happening in Tibet and who's marrying whom and who is an incarnation of which Lama. And you know, so he, was, he would keep an eye and he would cultivate close relations with aristocratic families in the region. Uh, and that's how the business of empire was conducted. Wow. Uh, and independent India inherited some of it. And then, of course, you know, changed it, uh, you know, with, with what happens in the 20th century. So, yeah, I think that's a, I'm, I'm not sure I answered it very well, but you yeah. did. No, that was really interesting. And, you know, empire building and colonial histories around the world are something that I think a lot more people are looking at closely today as we mm -hmm. think about how diverse nations and democracies around the world are going to move forward with, mm -hmm. um, you know, multicultural societies. So I think that, you know, digging into the ways that societies have been controlled and dominated um, mm -hmm. throughout the centuries is, you know, almost like step one in that mm -hmm. conversation. So yeah. I, I was with you the whole time on that. I loved it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So now that we know a little bit about the the relationships among the nation states within the Himalayan region, I want to focus down a little bit. So let's talk about mm -hmm. Tibet for a little while, which seems to be like your your main area of interest. Mm -hmm. So I want to dig into this topic. So as we now know, India is the home of the exiled Tibetan government. And mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can tell me a little bit about specifically the India-Tibet bond. What mm -hmm. makes these two places special to one another? Mm -hmm. um, so from the Tibetan perspective, uh, India is the birthplace of Buddhism. So it has an important place in the Tibetan imagination mm -hmm. uh, as the fountainhead, as the place where Buddhism originated. Um, and Tibetans have been coming to uh, Buddhist pilgrimage centers in India uh, for centuries. Um, like I said, uh, there was active trade, uh, intermarriage, etc., between parts of India that are adjacent to Tibet. You know, broadly called the Tibetan cultural region, so parts mm -hmm. of northern and northeastern India. So there is, you know, there's that connection. Um, 
From the Indian side, uh, as I mentioned with British India, it was important to secure uh, an, an, the importance of Tibet also in the great game, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Uh, but it was important to secure, um, Tibet was very lucrative for trade. So uh, a place, places like Sikkim and Bhutan became important uh, with the view of getting an entry into Tibet. Uh, but I think coming to more recent history uh, of the 14th Dalai Lama, as he comes into exile in 1959, he's actually not the first Dalai Lama to come into exile in India. His predecessor, the 13th Dalai Lama, also spent a couple of years oh, in neat. exile in British India. Right. So, you know, and he's coming, he's actually tracing the steps of many Tibetans before him who've mm. come uh, for various reasons to India. So, you know, the story, uh, and this was one of the lessons in my PhD, I wanted to, when I started just work on Tibetan exile and start the story in 1959, uh, but my advisors encouraged me to go back a few decades. Uh, and I think I'm very glad I did because otherwise I would have missed this whole slice of Indian history. You know, these interconnections and what made it uh, possible for him to come here and why was there, uh, from the Indian perspective, why was there sympathy for the Tibetan cause? So one of the reasons is the cultural connection with Buddhism, for example, and the place of Tibet in the Indian imagination. So there are those in India for whom, you know, the map of India, the imagined map of India isn't the same as the political map of India today. And mm. Tibet and, uh, you know, important Hindu and Buddhist uh, pilgrimage sites in Tibet are a part of that imagined map of the greater India. So I think uh, there was, uh, so there's that connection. And of course, the recognition that large parts of India are interwoven uh, in these networks with Tibet. Um, and there's a lot of respect for the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, as, as an institution, but also the present Dalai Lama as a person who's done extensive work in these regions, you know, in the uh, 60 plus years that he's lived in exile. And what that has meant for the self-esteem of people in these regions of India, you know, which are, um, Again, if you look at it from the center in Delhi, they might appear far flung and peripheral, but what it has meant for them, for someone like the Dalai Lama to regularly visit or to invite people you know, into Tibetan exile institutions and how it has reinvigorated Buddhism within India mm. to have had uh, the exile government based here. Um, and I think Tibetans all often say, uh, you know, just on 10th of March uh, last week, there was the anniversary of the Tibetan uprising in Lhasa, the 62nd anniversary. Uh, and Tibetans often say that they owe a huge debt of gratitude to India from the past uh, for Buddhism, but in the present for refuge and for many acts of kindness. But I feel that as an Indian, we also owe a huge debt of gratitude to the Dalai Lama and to Tibetans, uh, you know, whose presence has done so much, so much good uh, for I think both the image of India internationally, but also for people, particularly in the Himalayan region. Wonderful. Well, you know, you've also written a little bit about the uncertainty of the specific borders between India and Tibet in the 20th century. And I'm curious, um, 
how the borders between these two regions have changed in like the last hundred years? Like, have they shifted at all? What is that border area like specifically? Um, so I think again here, the important uh, part to remember from history is that states were not always obsessed with clearly demarcated borders. Mm. That's a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, and uh, empires tolerated a degree of <laughs> ambiguity about their borders, you I know, love it. frontiers. So I think there's an important, I mean, there's literature in this field of from what happens in this transition from frontiers to borders. So it wasn't always that, you know, uh, both sides wanted to demarcate the border. That's a relatively recent, uh, like I said, a relatively recent phenomenon. And the other thing to remember is that uh, there, there were people like, I mean, I think now we think about, you know, the map. Uh, so my, my niece, for example, I just bought her an atlas and, you know, it all looks really neat. Uh, and it's as if uh, every place on in the world has, uh, you know, you know exactly where it is, which country it belongs to. Um, and, you know, this person, it's, the assumption is that every person has one loyalty uh, and, you know, they belong to one country and not to another. And that hasn't, that's not a, that's not even true today. That's how it looks like. And that's the fantasy. But it also hasn't been the case historically. So for a lot of people uh, you know, in the Himalayan region, they had overlapping loyalties. So they would pay taxes to, uh, you know, to their local governor, you know, who you might think, okay, like this person is from this uh, district in Bhutan uh, and also to Tibet. Uh, or uh, even after independence in, you know, after 1947, uh, there are debates in the Indian parliament about are Tibetans collecting taxes in our territory and very mm. often, or, or, you know, are Tibetans crossing over into our territory and very often you would see uh, the person, the, the government representative, either the external affairs minister or his deputy who's answering the question, they're like, well, maybe they crossed over, but they didn't really know that they were mm -hmm. crossing over. Or yeah. maybe they came just to get wood for their utensils and then they went back or they came to graze their cattle. And that just goes on to show that for a long time, uh, these borders were not, they were not sealed. They were relatively porous. They were not experienced as borders. And it wasn't important. Uh, it wasn't important to have that neat line on the map. I think that's the, that's the lesson uh, that the world wasn't always this way, that we didn't always understand, going back to your question about location, yeah. we didn't always understand our place in the world in quite this way. Well, and what's really funny is you still hear stories about that. Like you'll hear a story of somebody going for a run in British Columbia, Canada, and they'll like wind yeah. up on the other side of the border, right. like in, in the yeah. U.S. being like, detained. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm just out on a run in the, on the trail. Um, yeah. It's really funny. It still happens. Well, I'm also curious like how the Chinese annexation and takeover of Tibet, how that may have changed the situation on the ground. Did that make anything uh, change as far as like how people behaved in the region? Um, yes, I mean, it had huge repercussions. So the, the one big one uh, for, for India uh, or for, from this side was the Dalai Lama comes into exile in 1959 uh, and then he sets up this administration in exile. But what it also does is in places like Ladakh and Sikkim and Bhutan that were looking up to, uh, to Lhasa and Tibet uh, are now, uh, you know, that it, 
in a way that center has moved as the Dalai Lama moves to Dharamshala. So I think uh, that gaze uh, is no longer towards Lhasa, it's now towards either towards the Dalai Lama, you know, that, that changes. Uh, and then of course, you know, from, the, uh, from a security perspective, the uh, British had considered Tibet as kind of a buffer zone, um, which is, I mean, now an antiquated idea, uh, buffers and protectorates and such like. But the idea that, you know, you now have uh, uh, the Indian side realizes that it's, uh, it's now a live border, you know, now you have China on the border. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what does that mean? In 1962, the Sino-Indian War, um, and up to this day, I mean, last year, we had tensions, I mean, continuing uh, between India and China on these borders. I think this issue is far from settled. Mm. Okay, well, that's a, a topic that I hope that listeners will continue to read about in the coming years. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk a little bit about nuns specifically, mm -hmm. considering it's such a huge and central part of your own work. And you have a recurring conversation in your work about the lives of Tibetan Buddhist nuns. And mm -hmm. something that really captured my attention was your article that you wrote called From Illiteracy to PhD, How Exiled Tibetan Buddhist Nuns Are Ensuring Gender Parity. And I loved the article, which was about a degree program that is like the mm -hmm. equivalent of a PhD. And mm -hmm. uh, can you pronounce the, the term for me of what this degree is called? Uh, it's called Geshe. Excellent. Can you tell me about what that degree means? What is Geshe? Mm -hmm. uh, so the Geshe degree is the highest level of training in the Gelug traditions. It's one of the four sects uh, within Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, it's the sect that the Dalai Lama uh, from, uh, is the head of. Um, so it's the highest level of training in that tradition. And it's the equivalent to a PhD in Tibetan Buddhism. Excellent. So to graduate with, uh, so, so the article uh, talks about geshe maas, that is the female geishas, uh, to distinguish them from the geishas who were male uh, until very recently. Interesting. Okay, well, I'm wondering what the what the coursework is like for a geisha degree for monks and nuns. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Sure. Uh, so to be eligible for it, you uh, are typically undergo about 17 years of monastic training. Wow. Uh, so, to, uh, uh, so this training is in five essential Buddhist texts that are all based on the Buddha's teachings. Uh, so like I said, it could take 17 to 20 years. Uh, and the method of study, it involves logical analyses, debates, uh, sessions of prayer and recitation. The degree itself is granted uh, on the basis of proficiency in dialectical ritualized debate. The debate is one large part of it. Um, and um, you know, those of your listeners who are familiar with Buddhism would know how central dialectics is to, uh, to Buddhism because uh, the origin of, the, of Buddhism is in these debates between Orthodox Hinduism and the head and the heterodoxies that are emerging at that time, Buddhism being one of them. Uh, so debating is central to it. Um, so one of the reasons why nuns didn't have the Geshe degree earlier is because education in nunneries tended to be mostly focused on 
recitation uh, and prayer and not as much on philosophy and debating. So one of the things that the Tibetan Nuns Project has done is to provide training in the dialectical process uh, to nuns. And they do a month long debating festival called Janguncho, which is modeled on the great monastic festival in Tibet, which used to be only for monks. Uh, and now they're able to uh, take the, the four years, so it's 17 years to be eligible. Uh, and then it's a four year process you know, of the Geshe degree itself with yearly exams. Uh, and at the end of it, um, you become a Geshe. Excellent. Well, I mean, how many, uh, how many monks and nuns achieve this degree? Is it common or is it pretty uncommon? Uh, so more common for monks than nuns, uh, and I don't know the figures for monks, but for nuns, uh, only 44 uh, as of 2019. So not that many, you know, wow. just uh, it, it's really, I mean, these are the first couple of batches uh, of Geshemas. Interesting. Well, something that always intrigues me is critique of leadership. And, you know, I'm curious if you have some thoughts related to the idea that Dalai Lama hasn't always been fair in his treatment of women in the monastery. Can you speak to gender parity at all within these uh, traditions? Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned, when I, uh, my first encounter uh, with a Tibetan Buddhist uh, monastic tradition was as an undergrad, um, and uh, in that summer, we had an audience with the Dalai Lama and we had uh, audiences with several senior, uh, both monks and nuns, but mostly monks um, who were in the administration in the Department of Religion, for example, um, at the time. And uh, one of the things we noticed was, so we were uh, in the fellowship batch, uh, six men and six women, and the men were living in monasteries and the women in this nunnery. And we noticed, uh, for example, that the monks had a lot more freedom than the nuns. So they, they could go out every week. The nuns could only go out once a month at the time. Um, some of the monks had cell phones, but they weren't allowed in the nunnery at the time. So we, and we also noticed that in the nunnery, most importantly, almost all the teachers were monks. There weren't any nuns who were teaching other nuns. So one of the things that we asked uh, in these audiences with the Dalai Lama and with others was, you know, I mean, what's happening here? Is this, um, is this a fair system? Is it equal for both monks and nuns? And I think among the answers was that um, nunneries in Tibet tended to be, they were fewer, uh, they were less prestigious, they were uh, not as rich as monasteries were. So as Tibetans came into exile, very often the monks came uh, in large groups and they often carried their uh, sacred texts and they were able to organize uh, easy, relatively easily compared to nuns. So nuns were dispersed. They weren't coming from these very well-established monastic institutions. It, it was harder for them. So the Tibetan Nuns Project was founded, uh, you know, under uh, the with the encouragement of the Dalai Lama, who by that time was also one of the patrons of Shakyadita, which is this global organization, uh, and it literally means Daughters of the Buddha. And he's won the Nobel Prize, the Nobel mm. Peace Prize, uh, you know, by that time. And there is this uh, growing. Um, 
well, criticism in some quarters about, you know, how he hasn't done enough for the nuns and, you know, how uh, nuns don't have the same opportunities. And I think, um, I mean, my own sense of it is that I think he has actually a pretty good record. So he has done a lot. Uh, and with the Tibetan Nuns Project, nuns really have come a very long way. Uh, and I don't think... Um, I think some of the criticism perhaps is a little unfair. I mean, that's my personal mm. sense. Of course, you know, people might disagree. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what is said about Tibetan Buddhist monastic traditions, that's true actually across Buddhist traditions. So even in the Theravada tradition in Sri Lanka, or you look at, you know, Thai, Vietnamese, uh, these are conversations that have been happening in all of these traditions. It's not as if Tibetan Buddhists are uniquely, uh, you know, that that is uniquely disadvantageous. So they have had uh, work to do. And, you know, of course, there have been uh, people who've actually actively put roadblocks on the way. But I don't think in my own sense, the Dalai Lama isn't, uh, isn't the one to blame. Having said that, you know, one also mm -hmm. we need to remember. Um, so there are 10 representatives, 10 religious representatives in the parliament in exile, none of them are women, mm. not one. So there are two representatives from each of the four sects of Tibetan Buddhism and two from the pre-Buddhist Bon religion, uh, none of them are women. So of course, I think one needs to ask these questions, but I think to lay the blame on just one person, I mean, that might not be the most useful way to go forward. So, Swati, since we're here on a show that values public-facing scholarship, it's one of my greatest priorities of, you know, being the person who makes this show. I'm also curious about your own work in this field as well. You do a Twitter series called Hashtag Himalayan Histories. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this series and what you do on Twitter to engage with a broad audience about the stories and the regions that you write about. Well, thanks for giving me a space to talk about this. Greg. Absolutely. This I love close it. close to my heart. Um, so I started Himalayan Histories uh, because I realized there was all this stuff I had collected, you know, mostly archival trivia that I cared very much about. Uh, and I knew all the stuff wasn't going to make it into the book, the dissertation mm -hmm. or the book. And I wanted a place for it. So I think you know, there was a uh, there was one a post, one thread about a saffron colored car for the Dalai Lama. Now, who wouldn't care <laughs> about the color of the Dalai Lama's car? Like, you know, or someone gifting him a peacock uh, or, you know, how the family map uh, of the royal houses of Sikkim and Bhutan looks, you know. So there was just all this stuff that I wanted to share. Um, and I think the other part of it was, as I had said earlier about public facing scholarship was I felt this sort of sense of responsibility to my material uh, and to find a home for it. Um, so I think I started it so people could, you know, just to sort of whet people's appetites about interconnected Himalayan histories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through these very short snippets and threads to give a sense of how um, I mean, how these regions were interconnected, you know, and have been, and what, again, what is at stake to think about them in nation state silos? And what is at stake to read uh, contemporary, how the map looks right now to read that backwards. 
so that's that's really why i started it um and i think another thing i wanted was um and maybe this you know i mean you could speak to this too since you do the podcast is you want to meet the friends you haven't made yet yes so absolutely i wanted to like just you know find those three or four people in the world who cared about a saffron colored car for the dalai lama you know absolutely or it's it was it was just that and you know when you find those people it's it's just so i mean it just it made me really happy like this whole experience has been so rewarding to find people who are coming at himalaya and at himalayan histories from different perspectives from different regions and time periods and theoretical lenses so it's been a really rewarding experience and finally i think i keep saying finally i'm going <laughs> on but uh i wanted to put stuff out there that my students would read yeah. so i know that they wouldn't always read academic papers and books but they they would read a twitter thread so i just i just wanted to put stuff there and to you know convince them that this is interesting and 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 to you know make maybe one day they'll pick a whole book and read it well i absolutely love that and you know utilizing it as a teaching tool is so wonderful and i was digging around in your hashtag uh, #himalayan histories as well and i learned so many things and it's been so yeah. so wonderful chatting you. with you about your work I'm just so delighted that our paths crossed because of the sacred rights um, cohort this year. And uh, I'm really grateful to you for your, your time, your energy and coming on my show to discuss your work. We've covered such a fantastic range of topics and we didn't even get to talk about Sikkim and Bhutan where you have so much more work. So I would highly recommend people check out your work as well. And Thank can you, you tell people where they can find you if they want to examine more about what you do, including the topics we have talked about and haven't talked about? Where where can they find you? Sure. Uh, so the quickest way is to email me on my work ID and you can find that on my faculty page. So if you just Google my name, uh, you know, you, sh you should be able to find that. But I'm also fairly responsive on Twitter. Um, so yeah, if you just like at me on Twitter uh, and want to get in touch that way, uh, and my Twitter profile also has a link to all my published work on Bhutan and Sikkim uh, and on the nuns uh, that Greg mentioned. So you could check that out there. And and also thank you so much, Greg. I mean, you're also a friend I hadn't made yet. Yay! So yay to Himalayan histories and thanks for all the work you've put in researching and prepping for these and. I mean, the few interviews I've heard with my cohort and the previous cohort, I mean, I've learned so much. Thank you so much. Support for this episode was provided by Sacred Rights. You can find at sacred-rights.org. Classical Ideas is produced, created, and hosted by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find Classical Ideas on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. Thank you so much for listening.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.